Hello everyone, I'm Graham Mann and welcome to the Starting Stories podcast. On this podcast, we interview entrepreneurs, creatives, investors, and more to find out how they got started and the habits and learnings that made them successful so you can apply it to your own life. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Rob Barbara, who is currently a managing partner at Build Ventures in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is a venture capital firm focused on emerging companies based in Atlantic Canada. Rob studied economics at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and did his MBA at the Ivy Business School at the University of Western Ontario before working in investment banking at TD Securities. He followed that by founding a startup in the medical space during the dot-com boom, then doing investment management at Burgundy Asset Management, where he founded an internal startup called Beaujolais Private Investment Management before moving back to Nova Scotia and starting Build Ventures. I know Rob primarily through sailing, which he's pursued competitively for most of his life. And in this episode, we cover his decision-making process through university and his career, why he didn't enjoy investment banking, how his startup went, and the thesis behind Build Ventures, among other things. I have yet to have a conversation with Rob that isn't entertaining, and this one was no exception. We had a couple technical difficulties to begin with, but things really get rolling after that. Don't forget to check out the show notes with links to things we talk about at grahamman.net slash podcast. But otherwise, please enjoy this chat with Rob Barbara. Thanks for being here today, Rob. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me to be here today. (laughs) So before we get into your professional background and so on, we both know each other through sailing, which you've been heavily involved in for some time. But how did you originally get into sailing? Off the bat, we had a few technical difficulties, but basically Rob said he grew up in Montreal until about age 12 when they moved to Halifax. And he made friends with someone who had a laser dinghy, which is a small sailboat. Um, and the first May that I was here, my friend took out his laser and I just simply asked him if I could jump on it. And he sort of looked at me like, have you ever sailed before? And I was too stupid to know that I might've been better off having had a lesson before I jumped on a laser, but nonetheless, I went on and it was immediate. It's, you know, those, there's, there's those moments in time where, you know, somebody meets a moment, an obvious moment, uh, where things fit perfectly. And that was one of them for me. Um, I'd been an okay athlete my whole life. But, um, the minute I jumped on a boat, it sort of, it was an immediate, both an an immediate love and in hindsight, an immediate, um, you know, uh, indication that there was a natural aptitude towards it because I was able to, you know, without any lesson, jump on this boat and get around pretty proficiently. Um, and I've never looked back. It just, you know, was the only thing I, I generally enjoy sports, but that was the one sport that I just couldn't get enough of. And, you know, my parents never needed to do anything to motivate me to go. And, um, it was just, you know, it was, it was the first indication. And, you know, that's certainly a theme that I use for the rest of my life where, you know, the signs were clear that this is something I should do. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and at 50 years old, which I am now, uh, I'm still active in it. And I think that's one of the great things about the sport as well. And what, what do you find so appealing with it that keeps you coming back? Like, is it just that moment or you've, identified specific things now that you find um, appeal to you? Yeah, no, there's probably, um, you know, I, I tend to keep my list to three. Uh, that's a personal habit that I've developed. Um, um, so the three main reasons I come back to it is, uh, I absolutely love the ocean. Um, and that's something, you know, I've been 
you know, privileged to grow up in Nova Scotia and live in Nova Scotia to have access to. And I just, you know, it's, it's one of those things, no matter what I'm doing, if I'm just jumping on a boat to get somewhere or if I'm, uh, you know, going paddle board, uh, boarding or going sailing, anything, anything, literally any physical opportunity to be on the ocean, there's a noticeable difference in my being, whether it's both physical and emotional. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, it's, it's quite uh, striking how, uh, how clear and obvious that love of the ocean is. Um, I love the sensation of sailing. Um, I really, really just everything about just moving a boat through the water using wind is something uh, I really enjoy. Um, and the competition, um, it's funny, it was later on in life that I understood the, you know, the complexity of that competition and how it actually fits with my vocation. Um, you know, sailing is not just a, uh, a sport that requires uh, physical attributes and uh, you have to be good at the physical aspects of maneuvering a boat and doing the things that you have to do on a boat. But the mental side of the, of the sport um, is very actually uh, consistent with uh, the challenges in investing and the amount of time you have to spend dealing with uncontrollable variables and how you are focused on process, um, I believe is critical in terms of your success, both in sailing and in investing uh, it, because of that uh, aspect of the uncontrollable variables that are, uh, that are inherent in both. Uh, so I, I love that kind of competition. I just um, find it challenging and, uh, and enjoyable. Uh, I said I was going to keep the list of three. The fourth one that I've really started to appreciate <laughs> The fourth one that I really appreciate as I've gotten older, though, is the team aspect of it. And I really enjoy um, sailing with a group of people and, um, um, you know, the, the enjoyment of working with those people and then the relationships that are so, so strong um, uh, because of it. I've luckily sailed generally with the same group of people uh, for the past 17-ish years. And, um, you know, they're the closest things I have to brothers uh, and sisters, uh, um, other than my actual sister. <laughs> okay. So, uh, there's two things there similar to your vacation or similar to investment. Um, you, you touched on it. I mean, there's unknowable variables or at least a lot of unknown variables in both investing and sailing, but how does that, how do more specifically, I guess, how does success or failure in sailing or an investment correlate with the other? Both in both sports, you have to have a strong understanding and acceptance of how both luck and skill affect an outcome. And you have to accept the role of luck, acknowledge it, accept it, Credit, which is inherently counter, I think, to how humans would prefer the world would work. Uh, prefer, per, humans would prefer to know that their actions are to, you know, control all outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, humans prefer to know how and why things happen and would be able to prefer to be able to explain and understand an outcome in terms of specific ingredients that went into it. Um, but in both sailing and investing, luck plays a major role, and you have to accept that. And that's so hard for so many humans to do, 
but it's something that I've learned to do. And I think it gives me an inherent advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I like to tell people never, never mistake, uh, luck for skill. It's one of the most dangerous things you can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I almost take it. I think my, my personal, um, my personal, um, method in which I push myself to never forget that rule is to actually overcompensate. So I'm, I'm very likely to credit luck for, even if it was skill and I'm on a boat, on a boat and in, in investing, I'm constantly banking, you know, things that I think were out of my control, but, um, uh, may not have been as out of, out of my control as I might've first appreciated, but to be able to maximize the positive outcomes in an imp- in, in, in a complex system in which skill and luck play both play a big role is to have sound process and to follow that process and to be disciplined around that process. And my natural personality, I mean, it's sort of a, it's, it's an interesting thing for a lot of people to hear for those that know me and my, you know, my, my outward personality, which is my true personality, but it tends to be a little, you know, gregarious and, um, and tendency towards, uh, maybe a little bit of mischief and stuff like that is I'm inherently, I'm inherently a very disciplined person. Okay. Um, uh, and especially around decision-making and, um, I've just, you know, I, I think, um, you know, recognizing that both of both sailing and investing, uh, you can benefit from that disciplined investment making skill. I think it's just, you know, I think that's the way the world works. So I've been naturally attracted to, to both of them. So you mentioned discipline and good process as things that are necessary to be successful in each, but are are these things that you can develop as skills or do you think they're more tied to inherent character traits? No, you can absolutely develop. Them. Um, um, you can absolutely develop them. I think some people are just going to struggle. Some people's personalities just, just preclude them from ever getting good at them. And that's just an, unna- an unfortunate reality of, you know, the, the cards that they've been dealt genetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think within a large range, people can develop those skills. Some are going to be better than others at it. Um, um, uh, but you can develop those skills. And I think part of that developing the skills is first, you know, understand what it, what a process is and understand, you know, what you have to do to follow a process. But then secondly, which is sort of the learning, um, aspect of this is having the success around following your process and building the conviction around, uh, around your process and takes you to the next level. Right. Uh, I think that's an important aspect of it. Um, no, no process is perfect. Um, and to think you can find a perfect process is neurotic, uh, but good processes followed in a disciplined manner will mostly, you know, will, will, will yield good outcomes more often than not, than not. It's that conviction that you have a good process that you have to develop over time. And so you need to be patient. You need to, you know, you need to have the kind of per- the mind that can understand the testing that you're doing around your process and all that kind of stuff and do that in a, in a manner that uh, allows you to to build that conviction. And how would one start, or where where would one start to either learn about developing those processes, or how to how to do that, or what's an example? In both sailing and investing, those there's many that have gone before us that have done it very very well. So I think that's the best place to start is to start reading. Um, you know, in investing, where I've done more reading, it's funny. Um, I've done more of the reading in investing than I finally in that realize how it applied to, to sailing. Right. Uh, but you know, um, I, I tended to, 
I tended to find myself drawn to uh, people that are described as value investors. Um, I think part of the reason because their process is so fundamentally sound and uh, very understandable because it's at the it's, it's often at a micro level understanding companies, which I think you can understand. Um, uh, you're more likely to have, gain a strong understanding. Um, so I said a lot about Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, um, Peter Lynch, um, those kind of investors. Charlie Munger. Um, right. and, and it just resonated with me. So for me, I don't know if this is fair for anybody, but it resonated initially for me. So I didn't spend a lot of time uh, looking at other, other core processes, uh, other pieces of processes. But I, you know, my own process sort of developed out of there. And, um, you know, clearly it's, it's a, it's clearly a derivative of that kind of investment. I, I would even, I would be, I think the thing that I've done that's unique is, you know, my previous experience in public markets, you know, there's a more, more obvious connection between the kind of investing that those people did at public markets investing. I've overtly tried to apply those kind of processes, those public market value-based uh, processes to venture capital, which I think is, is clearly more unique. Um, and time will tell. <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> Time will tell. Time will tell me if it if it worked at some point, but um, uh, I, I've got a sense that it is going to benefit Build Ventures. Okay, that's that's interesting. We'll circle back to that when we talk about Build. Maybe the other thing I wanted to ask: you mentioned this rule of three that you have. Where else do you apply that? Um, that's a good. <laughs> I just have a habit a rule of four. Of so this question. Whenever I'm answering a question about what you know, you know, what is it about this that you like? my brain just goes to a, to three. And I think that also is a, is a suggestion to my personality. So I'm not answering your question, but I think this is still interesting. I think you can cover most of the reasoning around three points. And certainly there may be more points, but their impact on an outcome is probably starting to be diluted. And so why bother um, uh, spending too much time on them? I think most people from a communications perspective, uh, I think most people can handle up to three things before messages start getting both muddled or even lost. Um, um, that's why I think I've tended to uh, get around. Uh, uh, so it's mostly a communications thing rather than a analytical thing or a process thing that I, I talk around these three factors a lot. Right. It's almost like a rule of thumb proxy for like an application of the 80, 20 principle or something. That's a good, yeah. Good, good description. Yeah. yeah. I might use that in the future. I hope that's okay. Oh, go for it. Yeah. Um, okay. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, we'll go back to your university days. You studied economics at Queens uh, yes. in Kingston. <clears throat> why economics and why Queens? All right. Well, I promise to be very transparent with you, even if some of these stories might be a little questionable. Why Queens? So another insight into my personality is one where initially not thoughtfully, but then later I understood that it was perhaps more thoughtful and made more sense to me. I've always sort of optimized around an equation whereby one must achieve, but you should also have a lot of fun at the same time. Right. The constraint would be the level of achievement. I always sort of, you know, I remember at Queens, I, I, I started becoming thoughtful about it at Queens. 
I had a sort of a minimum GPA I knew I had to achieve. And I literally thought after that, that anything else was me not allocating enough time to fund. Right. Um, so Queens was, I knew I wanted to go to a good university. I'd had a strong high school education. I was lucky to grow up with peers that wanted to achieve as well, which I think is an important uh, factor for people to grow up with the right peer group. And I knew Queens was, you know, at the time considered one of the better schools in Canada, but I applied to McGill, Queens, um, U of T, uh, Mount Allison. Um, I think, um, that's most of them, but literally one morning in the fall, there was a front page paper. I forget. I think it was the Globe and Mail, but I can't absolutely, uh, uh, confirm that, um, story about Queens students having way too much fun at a Queens McGill football game. <laughs> I thought that that school, that was an illustration of exactly what I think my mantra was, was, you know, achieve, but have a lot of fun at the same time. So this was clearly, these kids are very smart. They're going to a very good school, but man, are they ever having a good time at the same time? So that's why I decided I wanted to go to Queens. Um, the story gets even more uh, immature uh, about why I actually went to Queens thinking I was going to do sciences and decided that the science uh, schedule was too onerous for a first year student who wanted to have fun. So I decided to switch into arts where I would only have to go to class 15 hours a week uh, instead of 35 hours a week. Um, it was literally that, uh, that immature of a decision. Um, I took a almost like a liberal arts uh, curriculum. I took calculus, economics, political science, um, a couple of business courses, Anyway, five credits sort of spread out, nothing, no focus. And the only A I got was economics. So I decided that there was a signal in that and I might as well do economics. That's how I ended up doing economics. I stuck around for a master's degree, which seems a bit ridiculous for somebody who wasn't clearly that committed to the, to the, uh, to the science. But that's because one day when a friend of mine was uh, going to he and I were going to go grab some lunch in fourth year, and he decided to go by the grad school office to get an application. I picked one up at the same time. It was a, wasn't an onerous application, so I submitted it and uh, got a letter back a couple weeks later saying not only was I accepted into a master's degree, uh, but they were going to give me $15,000 to do it. So suddenly I'm a master's student. I'm a master's candidate at Queens in economics. It's like, it's, you know, this is a theme. The twenties are difficult, but it doesn't, you know, I think in hindsight, this is something that benefited me. But at the time it was just, there was just no thought going into anything. It was just literally, you know, I knew in the back of my mind that continuing to be educated and getting more education and a quality education was never going to hurt me. Um, I was 21 years old at the time. I was in no rush. Um, that's sort of how that all played out. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to tell you that uh, it was some grand scheme, but it wasn't. Yeah, although, well, I, I don't think any of us really have a grand scheme. But, I mean, the part that strikes me is it sounds like those were early hedges that you made, basically, or other applications of like an 80-20. So. So optionality, optionality or hedging or however you want to describe it. Yes. That's something I've always understood. Yeah. It's like, always I'm going to go to a good school and therefore, and going to keep this minimum GPA, which will therefore not limit my options. Absolutely. And it's something I still do today. And it's something that, you know, even at build ventures, which I know we're going to talk about later is, uh, is a consistent thought process that both my partner and I think about when we're making decisions. 
you know, this concept of always don't ever eliminate a free option. Right. And you know, once you understand capital markets, you understand the value of an option. And once you understand that, you're more likely to recognize and not eliminate these options when they come up. And that, you know, that's a, again, that's the second time now you've given me a description of something I might've done that I'm going to use in the future. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Hopefully I contribute something to this discussion. So the other interesting thing point that you made there that I want to touch on is you mentioned you were lucky to grow up with a peer group who was equally ambitious and that was important. So, I mean, two things, does it just apply when you're growing up or during those early formative years, one, and then two, which you may have some insight on now, but probably wouldn't have back then as a parent, how do you try and ensure that your, your kids grow up with a a peer group who's ambitious or a positive influence on them? Very good questions. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about both actually. Uh, The answer to your first question is simple. It always matters. The people you spend time with are going to have a big influence on your life. Um, they can, yeah, it's, I think, especially for an extrovert like me, I think they have a big impact and you're always going to be better off uh, exposing yourself to people who, um, you know, have better outlooks, more positive outlooks, are contributing, are motivated, are ambitious, are all the things that I think help uh, uh, improve one's quality of life. Why do you think it matters more for an introvert or an extrovert? Sorry. So I just, I've always, this is an area in which I'm not an expert, but I, I draw a lot of energy on from other people. Mm-hmm. So source of my energy is other people. And so I'm always, I think I'm always naturally more sensitive to what others are doing. Um, and, um, uh, and so there's a chance of me spending more time with people that are positively energizing me versus people that don't. And I, I, I know when I, when I have to deal with negative people, mm-hmm. I don't, uh, I've gotten much better as I've matured to be able to just brush them off. Mm-hmm. But it's, that's a, that's a learned behavior. Uh, negative people do affect me and have a tendency not to just uh, walk the other way and ignore them. Uh, I've gotten much better at that. And it's something I'm also trying to teach my kids now that I think I've gotten better at it. Um, in terms of your kids, you know, there's certain things you can do if you have the resources. Um, so I think I send my kids to a great school. It's a private school. They're surrounded by um, kids from Households where parents also care about the education and um, and what their kids end up doing. Parent engagement is, I believe, I mean, this I'm not an expert in this, but I've read this before. Parent engagement is one of the leading indicators in terms of uh, positive outcomes for kids, mm-hmm. despite the negative, uh, some of the negative stuff about helicopter parenting. I think there's a fine line, uh, but um, I think an engaged parent is a good parent. So my kids go to a school full of engaged parents. Kids that are from households where, um, you know, being ambitious is something that is um, is um, is valued, uh, doing good things, contributing, all that kind of stuff uh, is valued. Um, I also like the fact that my school that my kids go to also provide a lot of financial assistance. So they're also surrounded by kids that are motivated for the other reason. Um, they come from households where there isn't a lot and they, there's some self-motivation based on uh, based on that. Um I'm always encouraging my kids. Um, I try to do it as subtly as possible, but 
when I see my kids hanging around with the right kids, I try to make a point of it. You know, I like that kid. That's a good kid. What's this kid doing? And when the opposite happens, which does happen from time to time, I certainly, you know, I don't come out and overtly tell them that I don't think they should be hanging around with somebody, but I certainly am, you know, um, you know, less encouraging about their, you know, their, their relationships as such. Right. So I think if my, if I, I really do think that if I'm lucky that my three sons end up with the right friends and the right peers, and that's going to be, that's going to have so much impact on them, you know, along with the right family and perhaps going to the right school. I think that's, um, again, three factors, um, probably maybe even the most important indicator of their future, uh, success that they, uh, you know, they, they come, they throw up the right peer group. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're getting off on lots of tangents here, but I find them too interesting to pass up. So, um, two things you mentioned, you're getting better at brushing off negative people and trying to teach that. So how, how have you gotten better or how do you do that now? And then I think the distinction between an engaged parent and a helicopter parent is something fairly interesting as well. So how do you, how do you make the distinction there or how do you try and make sure you're engaged, but not helicopter? Yeah, (laughs) that's a good question. That's tough. Let me answer the first one first. As I've become, as I've gotten older, I've far more appreciated the value of my time and energy. And I've overtly understood that applying that time and energy um, is, uh, I have to allocate that time and energy efficiently and allocating it to negative situations, especially ones in which I can't control, is useless. Mm-hmm. So it's a learned, it's an understood, um, it's an understood behavior based on realization that you know, you've got a finite resource, time and energy, and you got allocated. Uh, you got allocated uh, uh, rationally. As you get busier and busier, you have a family, you have a career, and all the stuff that makes you busy. You're more likely to understand the value of your time and energy. Um, so I think that's how I've learned that. I think that's been the biggest factor um, for me learning that uh, um, that skill. Helicopter parenting versus engaged parenting. I had do not know the answer to this one, Graham. Everybody has their own uh, experience. Um, I know absolutely that. Uh, so in terms of my own situation, I'm pretty confident my wife and I are engaged. Um, I know my wife and I are cognizant of being, of not being helicopter parents. Um, are we doing a good job of, of it? I, don't, I really don't know. Uh, time will tell. The one thing that both my wife and I, though, do recognize and we work hard to try to uh, protect against, and perhaps this is one of the key attributes that distinguish between just engaged and being a helicopter parent, is that kids only learn through experience. And if you protect them from negative experience or you do do everything for them so they don't gain those experiences, they're just not going to learn. So... um, Simple example, but one that happens so frequently in our house. Kid, kid forgets his lunch. Clearly, it'd be easy for one of us to jump in the car and bring the lunch to school. Now, whether the fact that we don't do that, does that make us not a helicopter parent? I don't know. But we, you know, we just won't do that. We decide that these kids are just going to keep forgetting their lunch if we keep driving it to school for them. Right. Um, so what's the word? And we also, I mean, obviously there's a, a recognition that the 
risk is limited. Like what's the risk of a kid not having a lunch at school? Comes home really hungry and maybe he wasn't as sharp as he could be that afternoon at school. Right. Not a big cost, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the cost of always doing stuff for kids and bailing them out all the time is massive. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not an expert on this, but I do know that we, we do recognize and we try to allow the, our kids to learn through experience. And we are, um, certainly I am far more comfortable perhaps than my wife is. That's, I think, just the reality of <laughs> Fathers with three sons and mothers with three sons. Um, you know, I have no problem letting them learn, have these negative experiences. My wife, you know, has to talk herself into it more than I do. Right. That's just uh, another cost-benefit analysis there. But I, I think to some extent, just I don't know what the answer is either. Though I find it fascinating. But I think one aspect certainly is just being cognizant of the fact that there is a distinction somewhere between the two. Um, that in itself, I think is, is probably valuable. And then certainly the learning through experience, I think is, is totally true. Um, just to jump back to the negative people and experiences yeah. specifically, like what's a, what's an example on how you eliminate, if you realize someone is a negative influence or this event or, obligation is a negative influence how do you i i mean do you just eliminate it or like specifically how have you gotten better at saying no to things or reducing that from your schedule well so okay um that question i didn't know that's where you're going but that's an interesting question again you know this is there's a lot of benefits of getting old (laughs) there's a lot of of negatives but there's a lot of benefits (laughs) I am very confident that I have contributed, that I've generally um, tried to be as good of a person as I can. I believe I act with integrity and I know I'm painfully transparent and almost to a fault. Uh, I know my intentions are sound and good good and sound. So I've developed this confidence of me as a person um, that I'm very comfortable with. And once you've got that comfort level, it's a lot easier to disappoint people because you know, inherently this is at the end of the day, the ledger on you as a person is still positive. Um, that's something, again, I don't, I think that's something that comes with time as you get more and more confident in who you are and that you're generally, you know, you, if you take criticism, it's mostly unfair. Mm -hmm. Um, it's perhaps short sighted. Um, not that we're all, I mean, I'm by no means are we perfect. I mean, we do bad things all the time or we do, sorry, I shouldn't say bad things. That's the wrong word, but we do things imperfectly all the time, but there, you got to look at things in a, in a holistic manner and look at the person holistically and accept their faults and, but recognize on balance, you know, that they're, they're, uh, uh they're a positive, uh, force in the world and they're trying to be, uh, trying to be on the good guys team. I have that confidence today, uh, more so than I did 20 years ago, right? And so um, I, I, I'm very comfortable just knowing I can say no to somebody when I'm saying no for a couple of reasons, right? I'm saying no either because I don't agree with what they're trying to do. And I very, I can often, if I, if I need to, I can articulate why I think that's the case. Um, and it tends to be consistent with, you know, my value set or, you know, my objectives. Um not that I don't help people do things that I have no intent. You know, I, you help people all the time. So there's a, this is sort of, I'm looking at this differently than that. Um, 
Um, or you just don't have the time, right? And you've got to, that's another thing that happens when you have a family and you have three kids is you're, you got to be a lot more selfish with your time, but you at least know that it's, you know, it's cause you're directing it towards your family and you're, you got to be confident making those trade-offs. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, we'll circle back here. You did your master's in economics and then uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not totally sure here, but did you work for fisheries and oceans afterwards? Yeah. So this was, it was September of 1990. This is a fun story. So I'll tell you it in something. <laughs> I felt like I had just, I deserved the vacation of a lifetime. I had just gone to school for five, <laughs> eight years. I'd written two theses. I wrote an undergrad thesis and a master's thesis. I, I just felt, you know, again, being so immature at the time that I deserved just to put up my feet and hang back. So I came back to Nova Scotia I, without even asking. I moved back in with my parents. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and I immediately, so September of 2000, I immediately started sailing every day and then going out at night, having the time of my life. And six weeks into that time of my life, and literally six weeks, I mean, in hindsight, my dad gave me a long vacation. He basically just came to my room one morning and said, hey, this is done. And he <laughs> one of the smartest things he's ever done and for something for which I'm still grateful. He basically booted me out of the house. <laughs> uh, I can't tell you how awesome that was. I needed a kick in the butt. He gave me a kick in the butt. So I had to go get a job because I was broke. Um, I had no money. I literally was, I was on beyond fumes. Um, so, uh, this is actually, uh, this is, I love telling the story because I think it does. I am very proud of, of, of this aspect of who I am. Uh, <laughs> I started going to headhunters and, um, you know, I know the listeners don't, don't know what I look like, but Graham does. I mean, I'm, I don't look old. And so at 50, I don't look 50 and I'm very proud. I'm very happy about that. Now that I'm <laughs> but at 22 years old, I look 17, right? I look really young. So I went to these headhunters and all these people were scratching their head about why the 17 year old kid was coming in looking for jobs. Um, and one of them actually sat me in front of a computer to take a typing test. It was a temp agency. I didn't realize that at the time. So I took the typing test and I'm a five finger typer, but I was able to type 42 words a minute, which was the, and the minimum was 40. So the person started talking to me going, you know, like, what kind of work do you want? I go, well, I'm, I've got a master's degree in economics and their jaw just dropped to the ground. It's going, what? Says, yeah, I'm looking for a job. And they go, well, you we don't really have those kind of jobs, but we do temp work. And I said at the time, you know, I'm, I'm broke. I need to make something. So what kind of temp work is there? And typically it was a lot of it was, you know, traditional EA type jobs, which I wasn't probably either suited or interested in, uh, but I was willing to do anything. And that's some, I told them that I go, listen, I'm not, I don't mind work. So there's something that makes sense for a guy like me. I'm happy to do it. And a job did come up at DFO. Uh, they needed somebody to set up a, a new division, a, a, an enforcement division. And it literally was, you know, crap work of running around. Um, you know, there, it was, it was, it was just pure labor. And so I took it and, um, I met this guy there that I got along with and I saw a posting for an economist and I asked him about it one day. 
Um, I go, you know, how does one apply for this? And he goes, well, it's an internal posting and I'm not sure you're internal because I was on a, I was sort of a temp, I was being paid by the temp agency and I wasn't an actual employee of DFO. And he kind of looked at me, he goes, but you actually need to be an economist to do this job. And I was doing, like I said, crap work at this point. So I told the guy I had a master's degree in economics. His jaw hit the ground going, this kid with a master's degree is doing all this shitty work. Um, <laughs> I think that impressed him about my personality that I was willing to do the stuff like that. So he helped get me the job. And now suddenly I'm an economist at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, which was a great moment in my life. Because in your 20s, when you are so likely to just, you really don't know where are you going? And you need the system, you know, to help you point, to help point you in the right direction. Working at DFO was one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> the only reason I lasted as long as I did is because I was also competitively sailing at the time. And it was actually the perfect job for a competitive sailor because it paid me well, especially for the age I was. And the hours were, you know, you did have a certain amount of, you had to be there at a certain time, you couldn't leave to a certain time, but they had all these programs where you could put in more time Monday to Thursday and get every Friday off and all this other stuff that allowed you the flexibility that you needed to be able to focus on sailing. And I actually had a great uh, couple of years where I was actually part of a team that won back-to-back national J24 championships. So I, 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 I achieved so much in sailing while doing this terrible job, but it, you know, that wore thin very quickly. And I really, it actually, you know, and to, to be, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I don't mind being a bit uh, overly transparent as I told you I am. I mean, I think I got depressed working at DFO. Like it got ugly for a while. Like this was meaningless, boring, uninspiring work. Now, What's it was your, awesome, What was your day-to-day awesome. like as an economist? Like what were you doing? Like, I still can't describe to you what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> right? Papers on policy. I was researching outcomes on policy. Um, at the time, they just implemented a new ground fish, fishery collective uh, individual quota system. And I was trying to collect data to see whether that, you know, the intended consequences of the new system were indeed occurring. But man, like it was bad. It was really bad. Um, Not motivated at all. And so, you know, that was the first thing that happened where I sort of in my 20s, you know, first my dad kicks me out of the house, which is a good first kick in the butt. And then this job that is literally making me sick, it's so boring and so uninspiring, um, was the next big kick in my butt that said, listen, like you can't, you got to, you got to start thinking about what you want to do with your life because, um, uh, you got to use this mind in a productive manner that you enjoy because otherwise this is going to be a miserable, you know, your, your time on this planet is going to be miserable. So I did what I did, uh, which at the time seemed like the rational thing to do. And I think it was, was go back to school, you know, back to this, you know, go back and get a good education, but this time go back thoughtfully trying to figure out what you want to do with your time. And I went and did an MBA at the, at the university of Western Ontario um, and then that's the second thing, you know, just like when I stepped on that sailboat when I was 13 and it went, you know, there's almost like angels came out of, from heaven and started singing. It was such a perfect moment. Um, I went to I went to my MBA and started focusing on finance and a similar thing occurred. Like it was just this is great. I enjoy this. This is fun. I connected with the professor. I became his TA today. He's still a good friend of mine. 
Um, I excelled in school. I was on the Dean's list. It was just, again, this finally, I, you know, I, I saw it in a, you know, you know, not a sport. Now this is more of, you know, what you're going to, what your career is going to be, how fun and easy it is and how good you are when you're doing something you enjoy. Right. That was a huge lesson. I mean, I was, I, I'm still blessed. I still feel very privileged that I was taught that lesson. Um, um, and it has guided me ever since. I mean, this concept of do what you enjoy. Uh, a lot of people pay it lip service. I, a lot of people say it. I've experienced it and I can't, I can't emphasize that enough how important it is. Right. Um, um, so I ended up, that's how I ended up in first finance. I went and did some investment banking, which was um, not, that didn't work for me. The environment and investment banking is one that didn't fit my personality. Um, I then tried to be an entrepreneur. Um, I started a company with a friend, which was fantastic. And there I learned, you know, another big lesson that has guided me in my life. I like being my own boss. Um, um, so, uh, you know, Steve Cord and I founded a company. Uh, we learned, I learned more in those 16 months than I've ever learned in my life. It wasn't financially successful, but you know, it was a great, great experience. And then I ended up in investing. I mean, at that point in my life, I got married, started having kids, realized that, you know, I can't be that irresponsible with what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. I actually now have to start providing for a uh, for a family. So I got a job in investing, which I always knew was something I should do. I'd done my CFA at the same time concurrently with working. Um, so this continual focus on finance and investing uh, uh, was clear. I ended up at a company uh, called Burgundy, which was great, but I excelled at Burgundy when I was allowed to pursue an idea I had and start a company inside a company. So again, this entrepreneurial side. Uh, and even though I had a boss at Burgundy, I acted like I didn't have a boss. I took my new company and I built it and ran it. And uh, I came up with some of my, uh, my uh, I've got some important management uh, messages that I like to give people because I really, I really enjoy working with high performance people. And I think I've really learned about what motivates high performance people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've learned it. I've read a bit and there's a couple of books have been helpful, but I've also just been intuitive to know what motivates me. And I've sort of used that model in terms of motivating other people. And so, you know, some of the things I love to encourage people to do is to take risks, to do what you think is right, to have reasons why you do things. If you have reasons about why you do things and you don't have to ask for permission, uh, if you don't ask for permission and something doesn't go well, that's fine because you can, you know, it's easier to beg for forgiveness and to ask for permission anyways. And all I expect as a boss is that if you make a, if something doesn't turn out well, I mean, that's fine. Just don't do it again. Learn from it and don't do it. Don't, don't do it again. So I had this great opportunity to build this company inside a company. Again, another entrepreneurial opportunity. And it uh, just another moment where I was just doing something that was so clearly in my wheelhouse, such a you know, round peg in a round hole is another model I like to, or another descriptor I like to use. I'm a big believer that you should put round pe- pegs in round holes and square pegs in square holes and don't try and jam square pegs in round holes. Um, it, it worked out really, really well for me. And then it laid the groundwork for me to come home to Halifax and pursue venture investing, which is a, I believe it's a combination of my entrepreneurial side and my investing background that I, both of which I enjoy tremendously. Right. Okay. I want to dig into a few things on each of those, but why did 
investment banking after your MBA not work or what differentiated it from the later investment work that you did with Burgundy? Cause you liked one and didn't like the other. Yeah. So, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to answer those two questions, but I'm going to give you another story because it fits with something you said earlier. Why did I go into investment banking? I went into investment banking because when you're in an MBA program, there's two jobs that everybody seeks uh, that have perceived more value than any other job. That's being an investment banker or being a management consultant. Right. I realized that I might as well apply for these jobs because then I'd have the option back to that option, you know, clear understanding of, you know, keep giving yourself options that if I got one of the jobs, I could at least try it and maybe it's great. And maybe I'll then have one of these highly sought after jobs that have great value. That's the only reason I went into investment banking. Um, 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 so I got there and, um, investment banking is a, um, any investment bankers listening to this podcast might, uh, might get, uh, angry at some of the stuff I'm going to say, but this is only what I believe it's purposeless work. Um, it is a, it is a tax on the system that creates unnecessary steps in an, uh, and creates inefficiency in a system. There are certainly things that they have to do that the system can't do, maybe organize buyers around securities or sellers around securities and stuff like that. But for the most part, um, investment bankers create unnecessary transactions. And when I asked why we were creating these transactions, the only answer I could ever get is so we could make a big fee. Right. So purpose in, in, I never found purpose in the work. And I think finding purpose in the work is important. Um, I, I can't be motivated otherwise. That's just my personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really struggled. Second thing about investment banking that really didn't fit with my personality was the uh, culture. Um, and it is indeed exactly the culture that's often portrayed in movies and television. It's greedy, cutthroat, uh, backstabbing. Um, it's just not my seat. It really isn't my seat. So, I stuck around long enough to confirm all that. And I tried to, I was lucky to work at a bank that allowed me to try a bunch of different things. Um, so I worked in investment banking, equity derivatives, debt derivatives, um, a, a couple of different areas. And so long, certainly long enough to confidently conclude that this was not my calling in life. Right. Um, and I think that's the key. So, um, you know, Investment banking is a transactional business. Investment management is not. I mean, you do make transactions, but you're really, you're a steward and a manager of wealth. Um, so you're not constantly out there trying to create unnecessary transactions uh, to pad your own pocket. In fact, good investment managers try to minimize the number of transactions because they tend to be friction, frictional in nature and, and detract from, from wealth creation. Um, um, I also found purpose. You know, we were managing money at Burgundy. We were managing money for both individuals and for institutions. On the individual side, I was able to convince myself. (laughs) And I think I, I mean, this wasn't contrived. I mean, I think this is indeed true that we were saving a lot of people from really bad investment experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found a lot of purpose in that. almost like a money superhero role. Protection. (laughs) protecting people from evil. Um, um, on the institutional side, we got a lot of positive. We had 
a lot of, especially on the charitable side, many foundations were very happy with us in terms of the amount of work they were able to do because of the quality of the investment management that they were receiving from my firm. Um, we once had one, one foundation that went through some very hard times uh, credit my firm uh, for saving it because the foundation was so financially healthy and they were able to draw on the resources of the foundation. So there is a lot of purpose. You can really find a lot of purpose if you're at the right place. And I was at the right place. And that motivated me that, uh, every day that was motivating for me. I used it to motivate, uh, the staff. Um, uh, you know, we were there, I was there in the middle of the 2008 financial crisis when, um, you know, it was really, really ugly. And, uh, me and my team had to, you know, we really had to protect the clients. And uh, I motivated the team by saying, this is, this is our moment. This is when we have to step up and really help people. Um, and um, this is when we can be very useful. And those, all that purpose-based motivation, I think, really, really helped and really motivated people to, uh, to do their jobs as well as, as well as they could. So you can find purpose. I, at least I can find purpose in investment management. I couldn't find it in investment banking. Right. It sounds like there's much more of a synergy between the value-based investment theories and processes that you liked or had, had found, uh, had found interesting in, in the investment management versus investment banking. Yeah. So I want to touch on the startup in the middle of there too. It was called eSalvio. Yeah. So they and started, it was in the medical space, right? It was. It wasn't my idea. I had a very good friend, uh, Steve Cord, a doc, who found a problem inside his own practice in that, in, at least in Canada, but also in a, in a different way, you know, globally. Um, patients were being, patients were being generally guided into doctor's offices unnecessarily to get things that you didn't need to be in a doctor's office for. Um, the reason for that differed in jurisdictions in Canada is because Medicare only paid doctors if they saw patients face to face. But that there are provisions in the Canada Health Act that doctors could theoretically charge patients for things that aren't covered under, um, under um, you know, uh, um, uh, provincial health uh, coverage. But doctors obviously aren't tooled to be able to do that kind of stuff. So it was a simple idea. It was just a, a, a both a web and a phone based system by which patients could connect with their doctors around things like simple advice, prescription renewals, filling out forms that they often need for insurance and stuff like that in a much more convenient manner. Um, but that ultimately the patient paid the doctor for the, uh, for the service, you know, not huge amounts, 15 bucks here and stuff like that. So what we built was, was that the plant, the marketplace platform in which the two sides could transact, um, and I'll tell you, we had huge demand from patients. Oh my God, the patient demand was off the charts. Uh, but even though we were successful in getting, you know, our initial 300 doctors on our system, um, I think I'd rather sit on my front porch and hit myself repeatedly over the head with a two by four than ever try and change doctor behavior again. <laughs> so you're not rushing back into the medical space then. No, and in fact, it's, you know, these biases that you have to protect yourself against and from investment decision making, this is one that I fight all the time because we, if we have a startup coming to build ventures, that's you know, trying, that's geared towards uh, hospital efficiency or healthcare management or something that has to do with operational and behavioral change inside medicine. I have an immediate 
I, I tend to have an immediate uh, negative reaction that I have to counter uh, because of the experience. It's really hard. I mean, it's um, it's a tough um, it's a tough business. I understand much. I'm, I'm a lot more sympathetic now about why it's hard to change. I've had you know time has given me the opportunity to understand um, more why why it's hard to get doctors to to change their way despite uh, an economic incentive. Uh, but it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough nut. Right. Uh, it's a very tough nut. So how uh, did, uh, tell me a little bit about the founding process of that company and why you, why and how you agreed to join. Again, this is, so you're going to love this. There, I, I thank you for having this. This has been, I uh, hadn't really thought through all this. How <laughs> was another free option. I was done at TD securities. I was done with investment banking. That was no longer an option for me. Coincidentally, at the same time, this buddy of mine has this idea and he kind of wants to get it off the ground. But as a doc, he had no, you know, he had no background other than medicine. Um, so it was just this one. And I still wasn't married. I didn't have kids. So I had this great opportunity to not worry about um, personal finances. I've always been a fairly I've always been a good saver. I'm a I'm a value. I'm a value guy, not just in investing, but in spending. Um, um, so I had financial resources at the time to you know, hold me together for a while. And I just basically said, why not? Why wouldn't I do this? Mm-hmm. Did you put uh, money in? Uh, put a little bit of money in at the outset. Yeah, we were, um, I think between, I mean, I guess as a percentage of my net worth at the time, it was pretty high, but I think my partner and I both put in about 25 grand. Mm-hmm. But we were also... It was just the two of you. It was just the two of us, but we ended up, we ended up being able to raise 750 grand pretty easily. It was the tech bubble. It was actually... You know, I, I learned a lot of lessons again from this experience, but we were able to raise 750 grand pretty easily. This was People 2000 to 2001, which was sort of the period of your yeah. of the company, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, the thing we were faced, we were at the tail end. And right after we raised the 750, it was clear that the market was changing very, very fast. So we were lucky not to spend that 750 irrationally like a lot of people were doing back then. And we were able to let that 750 last for a long time. Um, but yeah, we raised money. We had a product in the market. We, yeah, we did, uh, we got quite a ways before we ran out of money. And by the time we ran out of money, I mean, the whole tech meltdown had occurred. Right. We weren't raising a penny from anybody. It was done. And so uh, did you, did you get acquired or you shut it down? No, we got acquired, but for paper in another startup that subsequently failed. Right. And at the time, I mean, the process towards the end of it, uh, when you did get acquired, you did you I mean, you knew the end was coming. You were kind of oh, yeah. running out of money. We were running out of money. We were. We were uh, that's, you know, something else happened. The, the, you know, even though I lost seven hundred fifty thousand dollars of other people's money, I never got crit- my partner. and I never got criticized once. They those people saw us. You know, we did everything we could. And they saw that we were doing everything we could. We didn't take a salary. We didn't, uh, we didn't waste their money. We worked our asses off. We, you know, we had success. The, you know, I hate to say this because this is so shallow, but we were on CNN at one point. <laughs> so, you know, it didn't save the company being on CNN, but man, those people that put in 750 grand certainly had some overt indication that we weren't sitting back doing nothing. Um, and so I learned a lesson there too. It's, you know, it's how you, it's again, your process, you follow a strong process and you execute and you behave the right way, you know, uh, you can survive negative outcomes. Um, um, and in fact, I would say my, our reputation was enhanced in that experience rather than 
we, we didn't take a reputational hit. We actually probably got a, uh, an opportunity to enhance our reputation amongst those people. Right. And these were mostly angel investors or actual VC firms? No, we had one small VC firm that put in about a hundred grand. Other than that, it was all angels. Okay. There was a lot of angels. I forget what the number was, but it wasn't a small number of people either. It was, uh, we had a healthy number of people. Um, a lot of $10,000 checks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Takes a lot of $10,000 checks to get 750. Okay. Um, um, okay. Um, back to Burgundy. So you started there doing investment management and eventually you, as you mentioned, sort of founded within the company Beaujolais. Yeah, Beaujolais. Uh, <laughs> I spent a lot for that name. You spent a lot for that name. That's I just one night. Does that translate to something? So, so the, the genesis of Beaujolais was Burgundy had offsites, and at the offsites, they like to open up the floor to blue sky ideas from anybody at the company. Okay. Uh, it was there was a little bit of a sub sub understanding that you better come up with an idea. <laughs> so I was sitting there quote, trying to quote voluntary idea period. Yeah. yeah. So I was sitting there trying to come up with an idea and I came up with the idea of a sister company called Beaujolais that dealt directly with two of the constraints that Burgundy rationally acknowledged that most investment firms don't acknowledge that precluded them from taking Burgundy's minimum investment at the time was $3 million, which was very, um, you know, that's highly exclusive in Canada. Um, and yet the average age of the Burgundy client was really old and, uh, you know, not, I shouldn't say those people were old, but from a business perspective, it was very clear that there was risk at the business, given that the average age of their client was in the, in their sixties. Right. And that so it needed to be a way to engage both the younger generation, which often would include the offspring of the Burgundy client. But the constraints at the time were one Burgundy rationally viewed themselves as not having unlimited investment management capacity, especially around the management of small cap stocks. They very rare in the business, but they said, you know, we can only take in so much money before we're going to screw up our returns. And then secondly, the Burgundy service model is really high touch and just not scalable. Um, and so Beaujolais was a simple idea to address those two constraints. I, my only intention was to present it, come across like a thoughtful person, end my presentation, sit back down and go back to researching equities. Um, the chairman loved the idea so much uh, that he asked me to start it. And uh, again, it's sort of that, why wouldn't I do this, right? Here's another option for me to do something uh, that could potentially be really, uh, really impactful, really interesting and really enjoyable. So I, I did it. Oh, by the way, the name Beaujolais, at the last minute when I was coming up with my presentation, I decided I should come up with a name for it. And uh, I went online and looked up the wine region of Burgundy, which is what Burgundy is named after. <laughs> and okay. the wine region of Burgundy, I'm not a, I'm not a wine person. I don't really know a lot of this stuff, but there's 15 appellations inside the region. And I didn't recognize any of them, but two Chablis and Beaujolais. And I knew I didn't want to be Chablis. Okay. Hence name, and apparently it's a brilliant name. I, I'm sort of, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but Beaujolais is a young, young Burgundy. Uh, okay. So there is, there is a smart, now some of the skeptics say it's a cheap Burgundy, but um, uh, uh, not so necessarily what? off base anyway. Yeah. So yeah. was this literally like a, a day 
like this was this company retreat and you were expecting to come up with an idea or you'd yes. been thinking about finding something for a while or about this issue? No, I, I, I knew I had to come up with an idea. I knew. <laughs> so I came, I thought about it for over, for about a week. Okay. And I came up with this idea and I addressed the constraints and I packaged it up and I had a offering and I had ideas about how to manage it and all this kind of stuff. I had put some thought into it. And so it looked a bit more like a, like a turnkey solution than it was. I mean, it looked like a, on a, on paper, it looked like a bit of a turnkey solution. It wasn't. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the chairman of the firm loved the idea and asked me to start it. And I did. And today Beaujolais is a very successful, uh, investment management division of Burgundy. Very successful. Hmm. Um, there you go. Yeah. How long, how long did you run Beaujolais? Well, I ran it alone for four years and the worst thing happened. <laughs> This is what happened, and this was terrible at the time. Uh, we were having issues at the firm, and uh, the chairman asked me to take over the Burgundy private client group. And so at the end, I'd be running the whole private client business at Burgundy, which it would include Beaujolais. And I, I didn't want to do it, but they, you know, they sort of did one of these, and we need you to do it. And it changed everything for me. It really, you know, one of the reasons I'm probably not at Burgundy today is because of that, because it just become... I was on my own at Beaujolais. Suddenly I'm part of the bigger uh, firm. I've actually got to report to this guy on a more frequent basis. I no longer feel like my own boss. Um, you know, it, it went well. It, uh, um, one of the things Beaujolais had been able to do was a bit of an incubator for new ideas and had brought new thinking. And a lot of it, you know, I think they appreciated a lot of that. And so they wanted a lot of that to be applied to Burgundy. Um, so I was able to make a big, have a big impact, but it just wasn't as much fun. Right. Uh, um, 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 so I passed on, passed the reins to other people and moved home when Patrick, um, you know, Patrick was getting uh, build ventures up and running and uh, never looked back. It's been the best move. Okay. So are you time constrained, by the way? I want to be respectful of your time. No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. So that brings us to build ventures. So we came back home and what made you want to get into venture capital? <laughs> I wanted to move home. <laughs> I wanted to move home. I wanted to work with my friend. I love the idea of a small two-person shop with none of the, you know, complexities of a large organization. Um, and I sort of recognized this marrying of my entrepreneurial, my love for being an entrepreneur and my respect for entrepreneurs and my investment background. That sort of does sort of meet Matt. It's sort of, they, they sort of come together in venture capital. I can but see that. A big, big motivation was moving home, and uh, it was a great opportunity to work in the right environment with the right person. So why did you want to move home? <laughs> Living in Toronto is tough. It's tough. It's, um, it's not enjoyable. Lifestyles pretty, pretty, you know, good lifestyles are hard to come by. A lot of time, a lot of, back to your allocation of time and energy, a lot of your time and energy is wasted on uh, getting places, on dealing with uh, the complexities and the, and the pace of a busy city. Um, okay. So I'm curious about this because I, I haven't spent, I've visited Toronto and I have lots of friends that live there now, but I've never lived there and I haven't been super excited to, to try lately. But aside from like, is, is the commute thing an issue that's specific to Toronto or that's just a big city thing? I don't know. I've never, I've, I, I suspect it's a big city thing. Um, I suspect it's a big city. So I just hadn't done that before. The only city I've ever done it in is, is in Toronto. Right. And I, really, I really didn't like it. I did it for 17 years though. So it's not like I didn't give it a lot of <laughs> So it wasn't necessarily 
things specific to Toronto that caused you to move? It was potentially just big city things, or was there specific things? I bet a lot of them were probably big, big, big cities. Okay. And then what made you yes. want to come back to Halifax, aside from being a small city? Well, it's home. It's home for me. Uh, it's on the ocean. Um, yeah. A lot of good friends here. Uh, opportunity to really get back into, you know, my favorite hobby, sailing. Uh, I knew it was a great place to bring up kids. Uh, much better, much more consistent upbringing than uh, that I appreciated. And my, my wife's from a small, smaller town as well. She's from St. Catharines, Ontario, uh, than growing up in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think also there's a, there's a, people here are real. Here, here, here's a criticism of Toronto that may be a big city criticism. I don't know. Um, people here are real. There's a really strong set of values that are consistent with my values here. There's a, love of community. There's a cooperation amongst people. These are all really strong and important messages and characteristics that I hope my kids develop to have a good life. Um, that's not as obvious in Toronto. Uh, Toronto's much more of a individual centric place. Um, far more money. Money's a very important factor in Toronto. Um, you need money to be able to do stuff, but it's also seen as a bit of a, I think people position themselves around wealth. I think that's something that, uh, you know, to the extent that there is some form of information in itself. Yeah. Ranking system is, you know, there's a bit of a ranking system around wealth. Um, wealth is very important in Toronto and wealth is not important to me. I'm happy that I am financially stable, but it's not, it's not something that I, I I would never identify myself using that as a characteristic. I, I think it's a, I, I just, that's not part of my value set. Not an end and, in itself. Yeah. But I'm living in a place where it's an important factor and my kids are seeing it and their friends are talking about it. And right. it, uh, it worried me. It, it definitely worried me. Okay. So build ventures, maybe just give a brief description of what venture capital is for those that aren't familiar. And then how you know the theory behind build ventures and what you guys are about. So venture capital, you know, let's start at venture capital, then let's get into venture capital in Canada, and that will then help describe build and what build is. But venture capital is the is an asset class. Um, you know, it's a um, it's a it's a it's a pool of capital that's you know derived from both individuals and institutions that are seeking the kinds of returns that are possible in venture capital, and basically those kinds of returns are high. Um, venture capital can, returns can be very high, high teens into the twenties. Um, because you're investing in companies um, that truly can um, be game-changing companies, very disruptive uh, market, um, 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 very disruptive in big markets, and as a result can be very, very profitable, very valuable companies. And in investing in those, you can make a lot of money, basically. Um, There's a lot of risk, though, because at the stage you're investing is often before companies are are truly established. You don't even, a lot of these companies you don't even know are going to make it because they're still developing products that may or may not be um, widely accepted by markets, may or may not be disrupted by another company that's developing something at the same time, or may or may not be run into the ground by a management team that ultimately can't handle the task of, of building a, building a company. Um, but it's an important part, I think, in society and in, in, in modern economies, because to the extent that there are new companies being formed, and I think 
you know, a healthy system has new companies uh, always being formed. It's, it's these companies need capital to be able to to uh, to to um, to develop, and it's, this kind of money's got to come from a specialty source uh, from firms, from people and firms that understand the risks associated with investing in companies at this early stage. So that's venture capital. It's a, you know, um, highly established in California. Uh, it's been around in California for 70 years. Uh, a lot of money's been made, a lot of very big firms in California that have invested in, you know, companies like Google and Oracle and Facebook and companies that are today worth, you know, hundreds of billions of, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, um, so that's venture capital, um, economies around the world and governments around the world want to promote this kind of, uh, financing source because they want these, this new company formation. It's a, uh, you know, starting these kind of companies tend to attract smart people that make higher wages that support bigger tax bases and support communities and societies much better. So governments are interested in developing these things. Um, it is a tough asset class to get off the ground because of the risk. So Patrick and I, it's hard for us to, for Patrick and I to go to an individual and say, Hey, give us your money. We're going to invest in venture capital. Um, we've only, we're only on our first fund. They go, so how have you done in the past? And we're like, well, we don't know because we're only on our first fund. So what has to happen? That's, and that's a consistent problem in Canada. And so what has to happen in Canada is that governments have to, have to, if they are motivated, uh, in this, uh, in this, they have to get directly involved. Now, governments can get involved in two ways. They can either be the venture capitalists themselves, or they can invest in companies like Build Ventures and be indirect investors in venture capital. And they've tried both. And today, it's generally viewed that governments are ill-equipped to be direct investors. They, um, there's a whole bunch of specific constraints uh, and issues that they face that a private sector manager like Build Ventures doesn't face. Mostly around you know, the ability to say yes and no more efficiently. It's hard for government people to say no, naturally. It's much easier for Patrick and I to say no, especially because our own money is in the fund too. So whenever we make an investment, we're literally writing a personal check at the same time, which gives us a lot of focus and a lot of alignment with our other investors and gives us much more conviction around saying yes and no appropriately. Um, um, I, I think that would be one of the biggest reasons why Governments supporting private sector managers uh, makes more sense than them trying to do it directly. So five years ago, Build Ventures was established. The four Atlantic Canadian provinces all became investors in Build Ventures, as did the Business Development Bank of Canada and the Export Development Bank of Canada. But we also got five private individuals involved. And uh, the total committed capital is $65 million. Over the last five years, we've used that money to invest in 14 companies. Um, we haven't invested all the money, but we have a full portfolio. We still have money left over that's going to be used to support those 14 companies. We often have to invest multiple rounds in helping these companies develop. And we don't help all of them. Some of them we have to make the tough decision to say, kind of like my dad booted me out of the house 30 years ago. <laughs> Tough love. Sorry, we're no longer supporting you. You got to, it's just, we just don't think that this is good. Good, uh, good allocation of our money and time resources. We're going to allocate it somewhere else. Um, and we, so we, the first fund is fully invested, and we're in the middle of trying to raise the second fund. So we're, we're, we continue to invest in Atlantic Canadian uh, early stage technology companies, which, which is what we do. Mm -hmm. So there's a few things there, but um, first of all, I mean Atlantic Canada is 
not historically known for its tech scene, I wouldn't say. So there have been some significant exits. Um, Radiant 6 and Q1 are probably some of the largest, and certainly they would have been some of the largest before you started build. Yeah. But what made you optimistic about the tech sector in Atlantic Canada when you founded Build, or what makes you optimistic about it now? So there's assuming you are optimistic. No, no, I am optimistic, and I was optimistic around the. So as an investor, you also always have to develop an investment thesis that will guide, you know, what the opportunity is. The Build Ventures investment thesis, which still applies today, was that because of those two companies and others that you mentioned. The catalyst had occurred in, a, in Atlantic Canada to start driving new company, at least on the people side, people coming up with ideas and starting new companies. So, yes, a nascent tech sector, but one that was improving. And because of these successes that the community had seen, one that was being motivated to uh, more, more and more people were motivated to start companies. And so we had... We we're at the early stages of problem of a growing and improving tech sector, and that's act, and that's indeed what's happened. Uh, I'd say five years out, it's even stronger today than it was five years ago. So we had, yeah, not a traditionally strong tech market, but one that was developing and was going to get stronger. But the other side, which was what really made me excited, and this is consistent with my value investing background, um, the opportunities occur in areas where there's not too much liquidity. And Build Ventures is the only venture capitalist in town. So we're not, there's not a ton of money chasing these deals, screwing up the investment opportunity. Mm-hmm. We are literally afforded, and we have to take this privilege very responsibly because we can't take, we can't get too, you know, we'll lose this opportunity if we become too, uh, too greedy. But we're able to invest in companies at very fair terms because there's, you know, there's literally, we're not chasing deals, we're not competing for deals. Um, we have, we have this great opportunity to invest in, you know, hopefully we can find, and I think we did find 14 companies worthy of, you know, that met our criteria and, uh, uh, you know, was, were, were, you know, we think we're good investments and we were able to do it in, at a, at terms that were very favorable. Uh, we think they were fair, but favorable versus other jurisdictions. And I think that gives our fund a greater likelihood of being financially successful. So that's a good segue. There's, I think there's a common perspective among Atlantic Canada. That there's not enough private investment money available. Do you think that's true? Or, I mean, you're, are there, uh, are there not enough startups for the money that's currently available? Well, there's, it's a complicated answer, but let me start the complicated answer by making a very strong statement that a lot of people don't wouldn't like hearing me say the good companies get money. So from, Simplistically, there, that suggests that there's, there is enough money. Uh, I think the ones that aren't getting money are lesser quality opportunities, and maybe they shouldn't get money. Um, that comment would piss off a lot of people. I recognize that. But I, I think that's generally, I mean, that's at least our, the number of companies in which we haven't invested in that we wish we had is not very large. Right. Now, is that qualified? Like, is there a qualification that goes with that that says the good companies get money, but sometimes they have to go elsewhere to do so. So now let me get into the complicated. I, I see, I see that the, that the, the text, the startup financing system in Atlanta, Canada, let's call it, it has four stages. And then I'll make a commitment. I'll make a comment about 
how much capital is at every stage. Because there is, I think there is a dearth of capital at a very important stage. So stage one is you've got an idea, you need a few thousand bucks, you know, 50, 100 grand to be able to at least work on that idea, build a prototype and do initial market assessments and get in contact with, you know, including getting in contact with the customer, some, some, some level of customer group that allows you to start discovering the market and start working on product market fit. That's often, that money comes often from angels. Uh, there are some government programs that help, but it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stage that really relies on angel investing. There's not enough capital in Atlanta, Canada at that stage. We would really benefit from more money at that stage, getting more companies at least off the ground. Um, 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 the second stage for those companies that do successfully build a prototype and get some early customer traction would be to go to, and this is where the government is often directly involved across the four provinces. Uh, in, in Nova Scotia, the entity would be called Innovacor. You'll go, you go and you hope to you know, raise a couple hundred grand, two, three hundred grand from Innovacor. There's some other government programs through ACOA and IRAP that could often get that money up to a half a million bucks. That money has historically not been hard to get. There's been, a, there's been quite a bit of money at that stage and has been that hard to get. Uh, with that money, hopefully you get, you know, beyond a prototype to a minimum viable product or even maybe a second, you know, second version of a product. You've, got, you've started to commercialize. You may not have a ton of customers, but you've got true commercial customers paying, uh, you know, paying, uh, uh, paying for the product in a commercial manner, using it uh, as it's intended to be used. That's when build ventures and we're the only player at this time at this point. And, you know, I, again, my opinion is that there's been enough capital so far uh, based on our assessment of, you know, there's not a lot of companies out there that we wish we had invested in, but that's when we come in and we write, you know, we often invest somewhere between one and $3 million to help that company take it to the next step, start really hiring, hiring the people they need to start to grow the company and see the kind of growth at the fourth stage, your location is no longer an issue. A venture capitalist not from Atlantic Canada will take note of a fast-growing company no matter where it is, and that's where your money really should then is probably going to come from outside the region. And if you don't get to that phase, and you can't get the attention of an outside venture capitalist at that stage, there might be something fundamentally wrong with the company anyways. Right. Uh, and that's that, so that's that hidden undertone of when you hear the criticism that there's not enough money in the system, the second question that's not being asked is, well, <laughs> is there not enough money in the system or is that company just not backable? Right. Um, and I'm not, again, I can't, I'm, there, there are definitely, I'm sure there's definitely examples out there of companies that are backable that aren't finding the money. Um, but I don't think that there, it's that, I don't think that's a large number of companies. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. So that's what Bill has been able to do. And we've done it five times in our portfolios, get these companies. And again, I'm not trying to claim that we did it. We're part of, I mean, the management team is the most important part. We're just the, we're just an enabler, financial enabler. They get to a point where suddenly, you know, their rounds are being led by outsiders who are thrilled to have an opportunity to dump millions of dollars into a Atlantic Canadian based company. Right. Because, right. Of, because of the true progress of that business. Now, circling back to, something you mentioned earlier, which was government funding, not always being able to say no in Canada compared to the U S one of the criticisms that's leveled a lot is even government backed funds aren't the same as having private, totally private money. 
Do you see any disadvantages to having government-backed private funds like Build Ventures versus a completely private fund? Yes. Yes. We've mitigated a lot of it through our limited partnership agreement, our limited partnership agreement, which directs the investment activities and gives Patrick and I the, the, you know, the independence we need to be able to do the right things. Uh, is we've got a really strong agreement that allows us to act very much like a private sector fund, but that's not the case in all. And to the extent that there is a motivation to be economic, uh, an economic development vehicle versus a venture fund uh, that may occur if you've got government money, then I'd see that as a negative for sure. The other negative is um, if you're doing a really good job as a venture capitalist and you've got a bunch of private sector investors, pretty confidently that not only are they going to keep investing in your subsequent funds, but they're, they're probably going to bring bring people along with them. Right. It's rational behavior. Um, that just, unfortunately, governments change. There's new governments, there's new people, there's new people on your file. There's new, it just, you just don't have that same automatic. Um, I'm not saying that it's automatic necessarily, but you can see that you just not sort necessarily of necessarily completely it's, rational, not completely rational. So it's, um, you know, a perfectly good fund may not, may die just because they don't get, you know, their, their investors don't support them because of factors that are beyond their control. Like there's a new government, you know, the conservative government, this was an initiative of the conservative government, the liberal government's not going to do it or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the other negative. Um, Presumably that was something you were cognizant of when you wrote those LP agreements going in that, you know, we need to set the boundaries here to make sure that we don't face these issues. But nonetheless, I mean, we did the best we could, but we still, and we can't protect ourselves entirely. Right. Um, but what we, Patrick and I did to help ourselves is we were very thoughtful around the kind of organization we're going to build. And we made sure that we were able to be nimble that we were able to survive long periods of time of not having capital to invest, that we were able to, um, you know, uh, theoretically, um, go after different pools of capital and um, all the kind of stuff that I think, you know, we haven't had to do yet, but we are much more likely. Uh, and basically it comes down to not fun, not feeding a big overhead. So we don't have this big organization that we have to feed. Um, um, it's really just him and I. Which you can view uh, as another hedge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I want to be respectful of your time. We'll maybe get it deeper into uh, specific startup investments in, uh, in a follow-up or something, but okay. as a more general question, what advice would you have for startup founders in Atlantic Canada looking to raise investment and, or what advice should they ignore? <laughs> the advice that I would have for them to raise investments is twofold. <laughs> I know I didn't come up with three, but three <laughs> very important ones. Firstly, try and get as far as you can without raising money. Just develop, get progress as much as you can before you have to raise money. Always try to get more true company progress before you're out asking for money. Um, and then secondly, um, always raise, you know, always raise as much as you can and make sure you run a business that has that ability to withstand the potentially long periods of time that it may take you to both progress your company and raise the next round. Um, 
yeah, be very, very, very uh, careful uh, to make sure that you can withstand as many unforeseeable issues that can happen that are both inside and outside your control as you possibly can. Um, that's, you know, that's one thing I've, I've continued to tell people is just like, wait as long as you can, wait as long as you can. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real sense in, in, in venture investing or in, in startup world that you have to go as fast as you can. I'm not necessarily sure that's actually the right approach. Um, you gotta be, you gotta make progress. You gotta execute, you gotta get shit done. But, um, you know, raising money just to be able to sprinkle fuel on the fire, um, especially if you're not ready to, is just going to kill you. It's, it's very damaging. And the longer you can wait, the better. And has that always been your view for both of those points? Or has that been exacerbated by, well, not just a perceived, but a proven reduction in early seed investments in the last few years? Yeah, so I didn't have a view five years ago, and I've developed that view over the last five years. Mm, okay. Yeah. All right. And it's not, and believe me, that's not a blank. I mean, that's, that's a general, that's a generality that wouldn't apply to everybody, but in general, you know, founders should get as much done as they can before they go out and raise money. Um, and when they do raise money, you know, really, really make sure that you have a lot of, uh, a lot of margin of safety in your finances, uh, by both raising and raising a lot as much as you can and being very careful with how you spend it. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it Sounds like it fits with the value-based company development and investment thesis that you've held on to for a long time. But it's certainly become, that sentiment, I think, has become more prevalent because of a tightening in the seed investment market over the last few years. So I was just curious whether that was something you'd long held or had been exacerbated because you tend to hear it more now, I think. Yeah, so that's not why I said it. But yeah, I, 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 I do acknowledge what you said and I have heard that. Mm. One thing that's struck one thing that I keep getting baffled by, um, there's a bad habit and I'm not, again, this is going to sound, this is going to be a criticism, but I think this is, I'm, I'm still not sure why this happens is whether, and whether how avoidable it is, but you know, you make an investment and you have a financial plan on which you're investing and you think a company this round is going to, you know, get them at least 24 months. And it always blows me away how quickly the first, you know, you think, you know, it's going to get them 24 months, but maybe they've got six months extra margin of safety in the plan just in case things don't go according to plan. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly baffled at how quickly we lose those six months. <laughs> those six months evaporate so frequently, so quickly. And that's why I'm saying, like, you got a company that went and built, you know, built an organization that was suddenly had to be fed. And yet the business progress isn't matching, you know, the organization uh, you know, these companies can get themselves into trouble very quickly. <laughs> Some sort of manifestation of Parkinson's law in, uh, in company building, I guess. I don't know if you're familiar with Parkinson's law, but basically says a, t- a task will swell to the time allotted to it. Yeah, it's, absolutely. You know, I totally, I the, totally the money will get spent <laughs> according to the time allotted to it. Yeah. yeah. All right. A couple uh, quick ones here to finish up and then. I'll let you go. I've kept you for a while here. Um, what's one of the your favorite sailing events you've ever participated in? <laughs> um, favorite sailing event I ever participated was the 1992 J24 Nationals in Kingston. I got to sail with John Roy, who passed away last summer. Um, 
it was it blew, which was great for us. <laughs> sailing with those guys was so much fun, and sailing with Leroy in particular, that guy was such a grinder. And that guy was so optimistic and we could have a terrible start. We could be mid fleet. And there was never a doubt in that guy's mind that he wasn't going to catch most of the boats ahead of him. And he did it. <laughs> and he consistently did it. Was one, uh, uh, did one motivate the other? Or like, was it, do you think it was his eternal optimism that generated his results or his results that generated the eternal optimism? It was a virtual circle, man. They both, yeah, both, built on both each other. Built on each other for sure. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, it was, uh, and I learned a lot from that experience based uh, about that. I mean, that uh, um, I think I, from that experience, I've also had a similar outlook uh, in sailing. And uh, at the recent sonar, <laughs> here's the uh, here's a. We're, I'm going to compliment my crew, but again, it's going to be a backhanded insult. <laughs> <laughs> We just sailed in the, as you know, we just sailed in the sonar worlds, which was a great regatta. Unfortunately, the conditions weren't phenomenal. Um, and we had some serious challenges based on, uh, you know, being in a big fleet for the first time in a long time. And some of the things that can happen that you, know, you just can't, you just can't get ready for when you're, uh, you know, often sailing in 10 boat fleets and suddenly you're in a 25 boat fleet. But um, we got ourselves into trouble a lot. And I think we passed more boats that regatta than any other boat. <laughs> well then compliment that we were so fast we were able to pass boats but we also put ourselves in that position that we had to pass so many boats because we, <laughs> we were often in so much trouble um yeah and i think a lot of that i mean i just yeah whenever we get into trouble we have this optimism in this well hey why it's, it's irrational not to have the optimism i mean why are you out there right you have a bad start where you're going to sit there and mope and accept the fact that you're going to be deep Oh, you might as well go out and try and pass as many boats as you can. And uh, we, we were able to do it. It was great. It was fun. Uh, but as I said, unfortunately, it uh, it was getting a little tiring after the uh, after we kept putting ourselves in these positions that we had to pass so many boats. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, what's one to three books you've gifted often or that have had a big impact on you? And I know you briefly mentioned there was a couple management books earlier, too. Well, so let me start with the management book. One book that has had a massive impact on me is a book by Daniel Pink called Drive. Um, and that's around motivating and understanding the motivation of high-performance people. It's a great book. Fantastic book. Resonated with me very, very strongly. And um, I, um, I use the, um, you know, a lot of that stuff I think I understood inherent, intrinsically based on my own behaviors, but it put it in a framework that I've been able to use and use to both uh, – you know, to explain a lot of this stuff to people. So drive, um, um, you know, on investing, um, I don't know which book you want to read on Warren Buffett, but, uh, um, I find the books on Warren Buffett are, uh, are, you know, are really important books to read if you want to be a good investor and you appreciate value investing, but there's also some great life lessons, um, uh, in books on, uh, on Warren Buffett. I mean, the, the snowball, which is the very large book that was written, by Al Schroeder um, is probably a, a good one. Um, and a third book, man, like what, what are the three books that, uh, well, a book that's fantastic on a topic that we've talked about is a book by a guy named Michael Mobison, um, who studies, um, studies complex systems and in particular uh, uh, applies what he studied to the world of investing. And this one, 
helps you understand the role of skill and luck in outcomes. And it is called, um, what is that one called again? Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that book. I'm sure we can look it up. The Success Equation, Untangling Skill and Luck. Okay. In business, sports, and investing. There you go. So it doesn't stick to uh, doesn't just stick to investing. So yeah, there's three three quick books that I could think of, uh, at that, but there's lots of others. I'm also very passionate about behavioral investing and, and uh, the psychology of investing. Lots of great books uh, on that. Um, that's an important uh, area for people to understand for sure. Cool. Okay, one last question. What advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about to enter the real world, and what advice should they ignore? <laughs> Sorry, can I assume that the college... master's in economics. No, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, assuming they're going into business and they're interested in business, I would, my advice, my advice to them would be to seek out companies known for having really, really good cultures and just work for them. And don't worry about where you're going, what your position is as much, where your next promotion is going to come from. Expose yourself to really good business cultures. And what do you mean by culture? How do you define culture? Well, culture to me is sort of a congruent, often has a congruent set of objectives and values in which a company, you know, a group of people uh, collectively uh, engage and execute on. Um, You know, at Build Ventures, ours, you know, Patrick and I only spend all day trying to invest in and help build great companies. And everything we do is consistent with that. You know, we don't, everything, our, all of our decisions around helping build great companies because we know and we're very comfortable that the outcomes will benefit us as well. So we spend less time thinking about our own particular, you know, um, position in a company or how much of it we own. We certainly have to think about that stuff when we make an investment, but day to day, it's all about helping build great companies. Um, you know, um, there's other, you know, a, Burgundy, our culture was very much around investment excellence and taking care of clients and making sure that we, whatever we did was just do the right thing for the client. Again, knowing that if we did those two things well, we'd all, we'd all get taken care of in the end. Um, I think good cultures uh, attract good people and it sort of feeds on on itself. And if you're a young person, you can get exposed to that early. That'll help. I think that'll help you tremendously guiding you in the future. How do you screen screen for that ahead of time? (laughs) I think talking to other, I mean, I think you just, um, I think the best thing to do is to talk to people that know the company or work at the company and just, you know, understand again, what motivates them, why they do things, what they like about it. Do they feel, you know, empowered and they feel like they can do what's right at all times or do they feel pressures to do things that sometimes makes them uncomfortable, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just at the end of the day, if it, uh, if it sounds like it's a good, good environment and a strong strong, uh, focused, uh, company, uh, strong focused company culture. Uh, I think that'll come out, come out a lot in terms of as you talk to people. Perfect. Okay. What's the best way for people to reach you or build ventures and the companies you're supporting? Well, go to our website, buildventures.ca. And you can both find my contact information there and you can see our portfolio. Um, that's probably the best way. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much, Rob. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for taking the time. That was enjoyable. Thank you. 
Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Just a reminder, you can find show notes, links to everything we talked about, and more at grahamman.net slash podcast. And I would encourage you to sign up for my weekly email list to make sure you get notified about new blog posts and podcasts. See you next time.